Good morning. I don't know how many of y'all were actually prepared for it to be 25 degrees this morning when you woke up after having a day almost 80 degrees earlier this week. It was interesting. So anyway, I want to start this morning with some scripture. I don't normally jump right in with the, with the passage, but I, I want to start there today. This is, a, this is a text that I've been sitting with for a few weeks, uh, really ever since David finished his, his series on 1 Peter. And so this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. It says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, God has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in God's divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly or humanly affection and humanly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that passage is pretty cool. And, and I've been sitting with it, like I said, sitting with it for a couple weeks. And uh, it's still just as important and impactful to me today as it was a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, for folks who want to be productive and useful in their knowledge of Jesus, here are the things to do, you supplement your faith with moral excellence, knowledge, which you know here is implying wisdom, self-control, patient endurance, godliness, humanly affection, and love. Uh, that's a pretty pretty awesome list. And so, not only that, but this passage is is pretty clear, right? There's nothing that's sort of shrouded in metaphor. It's not poetry. It's not even narrative, right? You you look at this passage. It's a letter. And so it's a, it's a letter full of instructions, and the instructions are pretty straightforward. I want to be more productive and useful in my knowledge of Jesus, don't you? I mean, right? So let's, let's look at this. But, you knew it was coming, right? There's always, there's always a but. But the more I sat with it, the more I found myself wondering how. How are we supposed to supplement our faith with these things? This feels to me like when you're, you're going somewhere new and you ask somebody for directions. How do I get there? And they say, well, you, you supplement your car driving with a generous provision of left turns and right turns and parking. And you're like, what? Like, okay. So you got the pieces, but you don't still really know how to get there. And so... Truly, a great question for us as Christ followers is how can I be more productive and useful in my knowledge of Jesus? And the answer that's given here is genuinely great and it's clear, but it leaves out the how-to part of the instructions. 
It's like if you went to Ikea to buy a new bookcase and they, and they gave you this like awkwardly shaped, uh, somehow super heavy box and it had all the right pieces in it, but they left out the instruction manual and that little like Allen wrench thing, right? We've got the pieces, but what do we do now? And so the question that we're left with is how? How do we supplement our faith with moral excellence and wisdom and self-control and patient endurance and godliness and humanly affection and love? And even more than that, how do we know if we're doing these things effectively? The world sure does not help us answer the question how. And that's just it, right? I mean, the question how comes from the world. Because you know this, the world values things that can be measured, and then the world tells us how to measure those things. But the virtues on this list, the things of faith, can't be measured in that same way. I grew up playing baseball, and uh, baseball, hands down, far and away, no questions asked, is my favorite sport. Uh, and, and baseball is a numbers game, right? Every sport uses statistics, and the, you know, the most popular one of all is you have to score more points than the other team if you want to win, right? But baseball is probably one of the most, if not the most, numbers and stats and data-driven games on the planet. Major League Baseball's website tracks 85 different statistics for just an individual player. That's not even counting team stats. And if you include baseball's sabermetrics, that number jumps up to over 120 different stats just for an individual player. I guarantee you there's more than that that don't appear on websites. There was even a Hollywood movie starring Brad Pitt called Moneyball, right? It was literally about nothing but baseball statistics. It's the whole movie. They just sit there and look at spreadsheets of numbers for two hours or whatever it is. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you're playing baseball, of course things like hustle and personality matter, but you don't make the team because you hustle, and they don't give out multi-million dollar contracts to the nice guys. Right? Players make the Hall of Fame because they put up the numbers. The world values things that can be measured. Think about grades in school. Kids are under a lot of pressure to make good grades, and so if they don't, it's pretty normal and natural for them to feel a ton of shame around that. We're really good at pushing kids to be better in measurable knowledge, but how do we see if they're becoming better human beings? Think about the other things culture values, right? Money, Facebook likes, busyness, and the list could go on forever. I even thought about the church, and, and I realized that we love things that are measurable so much, we try to bring all of that into this space and quantify the church. Right? How, how do conversations about what a good church looks like normally go? You talk about things like attendance. You talk about worship quality. Ours is really good, by the way, Dave. Um, you talk about how big the budget is. You talk about how much programming is offered, things like that, right? 
that's where this sort of checklist religion comes from. You know, do the laundry, check. Go grocery shopping, check. Read my Bible, check. Pray, check. And it's not that those things aren't important. Of course they're important. All those things are important. But, but faith thrives on things that are more important. On unmeasurable things. The things that come from our list in this passage, things that come from the fruit of the Spirit, which David preached about two weeks ago, things that come from the Beatitudes, right? those are the things that matter to faith. And so the world doesn't help us answer the question, how? And that makes sense because the things on this list, moral excellence, self-control, affection, love, and all the others, those things don't come from the world. Those things come from God. And so, of course, then, the how also comes from God. And so we go back to the text and stop looking for the how through our worldly lens. And instead, we look for the how through our godly lens. And when I do that, there's something that jumps off the page to me. And that's the word excellence. Excellence feels like the bridge here. We see it in the passage in connection uh, with God's glory and excellence at the beginning, and then it appears again as moral excellence in the, as the first item in the list for us. What makes excellence the bridge is that it sort of walks that line between measurable and unmeasurable. Right? I mean, of course... Uh, You can measure which baseball player is more excellent than another. But you can also identify who in your life is excellent at compassion. Right? And so it sort of brings those things together and it helps us grab a hold of some of these unmeasurable qualities that are so important. So excellence sounds like a pretty good place to start. Moral excellence, wisdom, self-control, patience, godliness, affection, and love aren't things we learn from books. They aren't things we learn from spreadsheets. These are things we learn from life experiences and from people. I want to show you a picture. Uh, this, this picture here, this is a young man. His name is Jack Birdwhistle when he was a student at Georgetown College. Uh, Jack graduated from Georgetown, he was a pastor for a while, and then he later came back to the school to be a campus minister and to teach some religion classes. Uh, by the time I got there, he was just teaching, teaching religion as a full-time professor. And so when I came to Georgetown as a freshman in 2005, uh, this next picture is the, the Jack Birdwhistle that I knew. Um, everyone called him Doc, like everyone. The students, cafeteria workers, even the president of the college called him Doc. Doc was uh, as big of a fixture on campus as anyone in the history of the school. And yet his name wasn't on any of the buildings. And he didn't have, nor did he want, any political or financial influence. But still, he was one of the most important people in the history of Georgetown College because Doc was excellent at the virtues in this passage. Doc was a tremendous historian, and he had three main focus areas. Church history, 
the history of Cincinnati Reds baseball, and Kentucky basketball history. Needless to say, he and I clashed in the sports world, but we both had a, a mutual love for baseball. He, would, he, was a, he was a hoarder by all accounts. He would regularly buy books that looked interesting to him, only to realize that not only did he already own that book, but he had also read it 10 or more years before that. Uh, his office had stacks and stacks of old newspapers and magazines that maybe had one article in it that he found interesting, but he wanted to save those things. Uh, he also had file after file and stack after stack of just papers with who knows what on them. Uh, he could tell you where the one he needed was. He knew exactly where it was, but he didn't get rid of anything. And somewhere under all of that was an old couch. You could sort of see the legs of it. Um, I'm not sure anyone had sat on that couch in decades, but still you knew you were always welcome in his office. Doc had uh, some severe arthritis that made simple tasks difficult and some tasks impossible. And yet he never complained. He preferred to ask how you were doing, and he was always smiling. He didn't want the spotlight, and generally he sort of stuck to the same path every day. He'd park out in front of the chapel, he'd go up to his office in the top of the chapel, and then he'd go down to his classroom in the basement of the chapel, and back and forth, and yet he was a celebrity. When I was at, at Georgetown, I worked for Doc uh, on campus, and one of the things that he wanted me to do was to create a record of all of his books so that he knew what he did and didn't have. And of course, the only thing he used his computer for was inputting grades and Facebook, and so this had to be like a handwritten Rolodex of book titles and stuff. And so I, I look around his, his office, and he's got several floor-to-ceiling bookcases that are packed. There's not a single empty space on these bookcases. There's a few more stacks, like waist-high of books on the floor. And I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's do this. That's fine. And he said, oh, well, there's, there's more next door. All right. So I go to the empty office next to his, and I open the door. And I, I kid you not, that every single wall in this office is bookcases taller than me, packed with books from top to bottom, and books all over the floor. And, like, before I could even wrap my mind around how many books were in this room, he said, and more around the corner. <laughs> okay, so I go in the hall, turn left, go in this little room. Uh, we're in the top of the chapel. So this room used to be where the pipes were kept for the old pipe organ. And so it's, it's a pretty narrow passage, pretty short. But every inch of that space is full of books. Thousands of books. Thousands of books. Doc was the only person on campus that I knew of whose office was allowed to spill over into three different spaces. And I didn't even learn about all the books in the campus ministry closet in the basement of the chapel until after I graduated. So Doc used this resource that he had for his students. And he gave books away. His free books table in the basement of the chapel was famous. People who studied other things, science, whatever else, they would come through the chapel just to walk past this table to see what was on it. Uh, he would put out his duplicates. He'd put out things he called oldies but goodies. He'd put out uh, some new, new books as well that he thought students would find interesting, and uh, mostly religion books, history books, occasional baseball books, things like that. 
but he, he was giving these books away, and he, he would send me to the mail room with a book and an envelope, and I, I was mailing books all the time to former students when he would find things he, he thought they would find interesting. Doc did something that was incredibly difficult, and that's to turn college students into readers. College students tell you they read. I'm telling you, they don't, they don't read. Um, Doc's classes were hard, but no one cared because he was fair. And so if you studied, you did well. If you didn't, you'd try harder next time. He would lecture about church history and New Testament and those things from his chair in the front of the class, and he would do it all, names, dates, events, scripture references, all of it from memory. Doc touched so many lives that when he passed away a few years ago, Georgetown live-streamed his funeral online because the chapel wouldn't hold any more people. And I watched it from South Carolina. But perhaps the most enduring thing about Doc was his simple phrase, shine on. He would say shine on to lift you up, to encourage you, to let you know he was rooting for you, and sometimes he'd say it to challenge you. When Doc would say shine on, he was growing the unmeasurable qualities of faith in people. When someone you know loves you, looks at you and says, shine on, Chris, it's impossible not to feel a charge to live a life like Doc's, to live a life full of patience and moral excellence and godliness and love and all the other things on our list. Doc was excellent at these virtues of faith, and people like him directly inform our question of how for this morning. Who do you know that exemplifies the qualities listed in this passage? Where is God calling you that will stretch you to grow in these areas? Like Doc, how can you be someone who stretches others to grow in these things? How can you be open to letting others stretch you? It's about people. It's about relationships. It's about increasing the scope of our life experiences. Virtues of faith are not things we learn from books, and they're not things that culture knows how to measure. And so we learn them and we grow in them through a relationship with other people, especially relationships with people who are not like us. That's why we as a church have chosen to emphasize people's stories and being a neighbor for the entire year. It's more than just a, a cool idea. It's more than just a Lenten sermon series, right? Expanding and diversifying our relational neighborhoods allow us to personally grow in these virtues of faith. 
It also allows the church to be a space that values these unmeasurable qualities in a way the world will never know how to do. How is an enormous question. But hearing people's stories, engaging with others, and expanding our relationships gives us a lot of hope for answering that question. And so I want to encourage you, like you've heard from Dolly and Tracy already this morning, join a small group to be in community with other people. We have new groups at all hours that are forming. We have existing groups that are intentionally welcoming uh, new folks as well. Join a group. Do the other lunch challenge where you go and you have a meal with someone who's not like you. The early church practiced communion by having full meals together because they knew that talking and eating tears down barriers. Attend the, the six Hear My Story storytelling forums that we'll have during Lent because you know you're more than just your outward perceptions and so is everyone else. So learn each other's stories. Do the daily devotional that we've created for the 40 days of Lent. Explore what it means to be a neighbor and establish new things in your routine. Not only are these good ideas anyway, but they also help us to grow in our ability to supplement our faith with moral excellence and wisdom and self-control and patience and godliness and affection and love. Doc's phrase, shine on, echoes this. Don't let these opportunities pass by. Together we'll expand our spiritual and relational neighborhoods. We'll meet new people, we'll change the city, and we'll also grow in our personal virtues of faith. So shine on. Shine on.